Good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. It's uh, fantastic. Thank you, man. It's fantastic to be in Kingsliff today. Thank you, David, for inviting me. I should tell you a little bit about uh, myself, but before I do that, I want to thank the Kingscliff Church uh, for everything that you are and do. Uh, as a conference, in many ways, you're a leader amongst our churches. And uh, we're watching very closely to see how God is leading you, and it's having an impact across the rest of our conference. Our conference comprises of 86 different churches. 11 schools and 5 aged care facilities. And we, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have a... um, That's great, man. We have a representative model of governing the church, which means the people get to say who the leaders are. So every four years we have, like, all the churches come together and they elect someone, and they did that to me four years ago. And they weren't very nice because it's uh, been quite a challenge to me personally to, to be put from being a pastor into that leadership position and it's been a big time of growth for me. And uh, we do that all around the world. We want the church to have a voice on its direction. We believe that God is leading us. We are a prophetic people. We have a purpose and He is our great leader. And it's through the body of believers that He speaks. Uh, as we re- has, he's revealed himself in his word. I, I should say too, thank you for your support of uh, Tweed Valley, uh, a Butte school just down the road here a little. Um, I, our chaplain's coordinator tells me the relationship between the chaplains and the principal is the one that sets the standard again for our whole conference. And they're united uh, witness to Christ and, and how they want that to be manifest in their school is making a profound impact. So thank you for everything they do there. And one last thing I want to thank you for. We have in the Seventh-day Adventist Church a tithing system from the Bible where we contribute 10% of our income towards God's work. And that is how we get to employ uh, Pastor David and uh, Jared and Daniel and those guys. Are you happy with the pastors we've given you, by the way? Uh, you talk to me later. Talk to me later. <laughs> because of your faithfulness in doing that, we've been able to increase the number of pastors in the field from 47 to 61 full-time budgets. We have currently around 20 Bible workers as I'm looking at some of them here, our goal is to get to 60 Bible workers. So God has been very good to us and we praise him. And uh, I believe that you are you're on a journey through the Old Testament, is that right? Do I say a blazing grace? Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you today uh, that we could be found here on the Sabbath to worship you. Uh, We are captive by your grace. Though we are sinful and weak, we have a saviour in Jesus. And it is in his name we come to you and we ask for the presence of your spirit. That he'd be present as we read your word and study it together. That you would speak to us, Lord, and that when we leave here in just a few moments' time, we would know 
that you've been with us, Lord, and others would say that those people have been with Jesus is our prayer in his precious name. Amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Uh, I guess you have pew Bibles, or if you don't have one, look on with the person beside you. I want you to... uh, The topic of the sermon today that was given to me is simply Pharaoh, which I think uh, is a pretty interesting topic. I want you to turn to the book of Exodus, and we want to go to Exodus the fifth chapter. What do you think of when you hear the word Pharaoh? Someone said the Pharaoh's preaching about the Pharaoh to me today when I told them that. Uh, That's not quite right. Um, I hope it's not anyway. As you're going to see in the sermon, the Pharaoh is an interesting guy. And before we get straight into Scripture, there's a couple of things about Pharaoh that I want you to notice. In the Bible... There are numbers of rulers from Egypt that we call Pharaoh that get a name. We know that Pharaoh Necho kills Josiah in a battle at a place called Megiddo or the mountain Har-Megiddo where it becomes a symbol for the last battle in the world of Armageddon. So we get the name of that Pharaoh. We get Shishak and Apri and all these different Pharaohs through the Bible. We know that Abraham went to Egypt and lied to Pharaoh about his beautiful wife, saying, she's my sister. But the most important Pharaoh of the Bible, the Bible refuses to give him a name. It's kind of frustrating. uh, Because the Exodus, and when it takes place, is actually a rock-solid event from history. We can use the Bible to go back, you use 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 and it tells us that they built the temple 480 years after the Exodus. So we know the Exodus takes place around 1450 BC. You say, big deal. Well, it is a big deal because no matter how much digging we do and how many things we discover from history, the Bible is coming out on top every time. And for ages, you know, uh, I'll I'll show you a picture of the guy that I personally believe was the pharaoh of the Exodus. I can't prove it to you. Shucks. Uh, I did so much work on this. That's Tutmosis III. He is the most powerful pharaoh that ever lived in history. The, The date of his death corresponds exactly with the Exodus So much so that if you look even in his tomb, there was a rush job on the tomb and it was never finished. And that is just unlike the most powerful ruler that was ever in Egypt. But here's the problem, they went and changed all the dates on me, the Egyptian dates. So now they'll give you another name. You know why the Bible doesn't give this guy a name? They don't want to honour him. And as we're going to see in the sermon today... He'll go down as someone that was an absolute enemy of God and his people. And we want to look, the Bible doesn't want to venerate a guy that takes that stance, so they never give him a name. I still think it's Tutmosis III, but that doesn't matter. A couple of other things I want you to know about Pharaoh. Pharaoh was born into a position. He didn't earn it. He was born into a position and that position said that he is the incarnation of the son of, of uh, 
the God Ra, which is the greatest of all the Egyptian gods, and they worship absolutely everything that can move. They worship dung beetles that crawl across the ground, and they roll up dung and say they must push the sun. They worshipped everything, but the highest one of their gods was Ra. This guy was born into a position where he was taught and told that he was deity. He was divine. Uh, That's going to become a real problem later in life for Pharaoh because he's going to discover that he's really not. He was so powerful that when they bury you as Pharaoh, you're buried inside seven or eight different coffins. The final coffin is made of solid gold. That's how important you are in their system that even your coffin is gold. You can see why it would be very easy to fall into the trap to think that you're a little bit important. Pharaoh thinks he's important. One more thing I want you to uh, see about Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a symbol of pride and arrogance against God. And today, as we look at his story, I don't want you to think about some bad guy in the Bible. I want you to think about us. I want you to think about the Pharaoh that lives in all of us and how that affects our walk with God. Because God gave us these stories. He allows this to happen so we might learn some things about life. And despite all the attempts of Hollywood to remake this into movies that don't even come close to what it's really about, the Bible uses Pharaoh as a lesson. And that lesson is for me and that lesson is for you. So I pray that God would be able to show us the lesson today. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2. I'm using a, do you use a New King James Bible here? Doesn't matter. I'm using a New King James Bible. Follow along as we go. It says in chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron... By the way, David, where have you come to in this story? You're, you're up to chapter 5. How about that? You know the background. You know what's going on. Moses is being taken from the wilderness. He's sent back to the place of his childhood to rescue these people. And he gets back there. And Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh's words of chapter 5 and verse 2 are classic words. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. In absolute honesty and truth, it's true. He says, I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to let him go. Who is God that I should obey him? The first thing I want you to notice about Pharaoh is that God absolutely loves Pharaoh and is attempting to save him. 
When we first hear about him, if you have a look with me in chapter 4 and verse 21, uh, a lot of people get the idea that God is trying to destroy Pharaoh because the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's where it says it here in 4.21. In fact, the Bible says it 10 times. It says, now, the Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 4 and verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. What hope did Pharaoh have if God was going to harden his heart so he wouldn't obey him. It would be very easy to think that God was somehow against this guy. Can I just put a hold on Pharaoh and talk to all of us this morning? The most important thing that you'll ever know in your life is that the God of heaven is on your side. He is not against you. He is for you. And when you sin and make a mistake, when you're utterly selfish and you do the wrong thing and you have a great sense of guilt and shame, and I've met so many people that actually give up going to church because they feel like they're a hypocrite. The one person in the universe that will be first to stand up for you is the God of the universe. And it's so easy for us to think that God's against us he's condemning us he's doing stuff in our life to trip us up and ultimately at the end we're not going to make it because I've messed up and God's not helping me I'm here to tell you today that the God of heaven is on your side he wants to save you he will do anything in his power to save you and you know what in the Bible God loves to save kings There's another king in the Bible called Nebuchadnezzar. Have you heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Great name. Justin. It's so boring compared to Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar was a dude. They had made a movie about him that I saw the other day and he had a red beard. I thought, he looks cool. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was as lost as this pharaoh is lost. But you know what? My Bible tells me that Nebuchadnezzar will actually be in the kingdom because God in his great mercy sent trouble to this man so much so that he was like a wild beast in the field for seven years and when he came out of that state, he came back humble and teachable and God saved the king. He would love to do the same with Pharaoh. And if you follow on in the story and There's a lot to the story. If you look carefully, it was not God that was hardening Pharaoh's heart. But in fact, it was his own choices. If you have a look with me, um, we're in chapter 7. Please follow on. Um, It says, in verse 3 again, God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you. Now, he knows that Pharaoh is stubborn and he ultimately knows the choices that he'll make. But the Bible makes it clear in chapter 8 that it's actually Pharaoh himself who hardens his heart. In chapter 8 and verse uh, 15, it says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was no relief, he hardened his heart 
and did not heed them. See, what God does to try and save Pharaoh, God could waltz into Egypt and just snap his fingers and save his people and everyone would have gone home. That's as easy as it is for God. But God takes his time. He, he, he does a thorough process here. He comes in and he performs sign after sign after sign and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know the first sign he does, don't you? He takes, Moses takes the rod and he throws it on the ground and what does it become? It becomes a snake. Pharaoh's own magicians were able to mock that by reproducing the same miracle through witchcraft. They throw their staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. Moses' snake eats the snake of witchcraft, swallows it whole. Little things like that, God is sending along to Pharaoh to try and get through to his heart. Let me just put the brakes on that story. What has God been doing in your life to get through to your heart? He doesn't always send snakes. He doesn't always, you turn the tap on at home and the water turns to blood. He doesn't do that stuff normally. By the way, he can. And he'll do some amazing miracles in order to save people. It was interesting to me that when September 11 happened in, in New York, in the United States, and the towers came down, the churches filled up. They filled up. Because people felt that that gave a message to them to God's heart. You know how long they stayed full for? Not long. <laughs> Within 12 months, it started to deplete, and it was all, all this reaction to the signs that God had given never really made the ultimate difference. And in Pharaoh, we get sign after sign until we get down to chapter 9 where God actually breaks this guy. We can, we can go through the different plagues. The, the water becomes blood. There are frogs throughout the land. There's lice. There's flies. The livestock die. There's boils all over them. This is miserable living in this place. Yet this guy won't bend. And then when we get to chapter 9, I want you to follow on with me in your Bible. Chapter 9 and verse 13, it turns out that Pharaoh does not like storms, particularly hailstorms. I want you to notice the theology of what God's trying to do here. I'm going to take up the story. And verse 15, he says, Now if I stretch out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for my purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and my name may be declared in all the earth. And verse 17, as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. God said, I could just bring this to an end like that, but I'm doing this demonstrating my power step by step that you would soften your heart. Well, as it turns out, the hail got to him. And down in verse 27, it says, And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. This is Pharaoh talking. Who is God that I should know him? I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people... And I are wicked. Is that the truth? 
He's come to the ultimate truth where he's realized he's a sinner. And his whole land is filled with people who are sinners. We're all sinners. But he is in the hands of a loving God who's trying to save him eternally. And the Bible says uh, in verse 28, Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Well, as it turned out, if you come down to the end of the chapter in verse 35, it says, So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken to Moses, despite the miracle and despite the fact that he said, I'm a sinner, I'm going to let you go. As soon as the storm ends and the hail and the fire are gone, guess what Pharaoh does? He goes back to the exact position he was in before. This guy's a tough nut. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever worked with a tough nut. Uh, Tough nuts really... Despite everything you can show in the Bible, despite how God has led in their lives and you can see providence and circumstance, one after the other after the other, they refuse to surrender themselves to God. If you come back to the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 16, just keep your finger in Exodus. I want to show you that what happens to Pharaoh is going to happen to the entire world. And the plagues of Egypt... In the book of Revelation, are repeated, not 10, but 7. And in verse 21 of Revelation chapter 16 and verse 21, it says, The great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague and the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. What's happening to Pharaoh in Egypt is happening to the world today. It's going to reach its climax before Christ comes back. Which side of the fence do you want to be on? Because for me, and and in my journey, and as I work with other people, I think today's the day that we need to get it right with God before there's a hailstorm. Before there's some catastrophe or some crisis. Um, My dad used to go to church with me when I was a boy and he gave up on church a long time ago and just the other day uh, he had something happen in his life and he called me up on Friday night. My dad, he misses the Sabbath. He calls me on Friday night and he's crying and crying. He says, I need to go back to church. And I'm crying with my dad on the phone. But I knew that when we got off the phone and that moment went away, that everything would actually go back to normal. And lo and behold, it has. I'm not giving up. But I want to speak to everyone in this room today. So easy when we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit and we're in a certain emotional state. Yeah, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to stick with God. I want to tell you today, the only possible way that Pharaoh could have been saved was a miracle and my dad and me and all of us in here we all need a miracle 
a miracle of our heart because it's not through determination and it's not just through sheer choice that I'm going to make everything right. We need to ask for a miracle from heaven that our hearts would be changed. That's all that will save us. Not all the conviction and resolutions in the world will save us. Pharaoh got convicted as heavy as anyone was convicted, but it lasted a half an hour, an hour. Then the old man came back. The old man came back. Let, let, let me go back. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I, I was really happy that the projector died because I hate using PowerPoint, but um, it's up there now. There's no power in the PowerPoint. But seeing it's there, you see that little stone up there that's carved into the shape of a scarab beetle? It's, a, it's actually from Egypt... It's called a heart uh, amulet. <laughs> Every pharaoh that was ever buried, they found a hundred of these in mummies. When they bury the pharaoh, they place this stone in his chest cavity over their heart and then wrap them up. Why would they do that? Because on the back of that little amulet, this little stone was carved this like this chant that was going to actually save the Pharaoh in the judgment. Uh, it, it, it's called, it says there it's a spell from the Book of the Dead. Chapter 30, the Egyptians had a Book of the Dead. In that book, the way you get through the judgment in their scheme of salvation is this little chant would be put over your heart and that would purify you and get you through. I think God is having a play when he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because in their system of salvation, it was actually a stone upon his heart that was supposed to save him. In the end, his stony heart destroyed him. Destroyed him. Um, Every miracle, every miracle that God performed in front of this man was an appeal. Be ye reconciled unto God. It was an appeal. He was attempting to get through to him that he might soften his heart and so be saved. Um, There's a battle raging for his soul. There's a battle raging for our soul today. And it is those that have a soft heart, more than that, that will humble themselves. In Exodus chapter 10 and verse 3, this is what it says in verse 3. And Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God? All of us, if we are to be saved, are going to have to humble ourselves before God. I have to say that anything that humbles you is good for you. I, I, <laughs> I don't know whether I should tell these stories. This goes on the internet, doesn't it? Uh, maybe next time. When the internet's broken, ask me to come back. Um, <laughs> let me go to the next point. Uh, this is what this beautiful book, Patriarchs and Prophets, says about God's need to save this man. He says, there was no exercise of supernatural power to harden the heart of the king. God did not prevent him from being saved. In fact, if you have that view of God, it's the wrong God. 
The God of the Bible does everything he can to save from the highest king in the land to the lowest servant. He'll do everything he can to save them. God gave Pharaoh the most striking evidence of divine power. But the monarch stubbornly refused to heed the light. Every display of infinite power rejected by him rendered him more determined in his rebellion. When he said, who is God that I should follow him? He made a statement of pride. He never, ever recanted from that. Be very careful with pride, folks. It gets all of us. The human heart, the condition of your heart will determine your destiny. And when the Bible says heart, it doesn't mean the organ that pumps your blood. In the Bible, your heart is your emotions, particularly your attitudes and your intelligence. Um, The religion of Jesus begins and ends with the heart. I want you to turn up with me to Ephesians chapter 3. The Bible makes it so clear that our hearts is where our destiny is determined. Our hearts, the Bible says in Job 36, can be hypocritical. They can be perverted in Proverbs chapter 6. They can be proud. They can be fearful hearts. They can be evil and unbelieving. They can certainly be stubborn, according to Jeremiah 5.23. And our hearts can be filled with idols, things we love ahead of God. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul cuts through to the heart of the matter. This is how any of us... The only way any of us can be saved. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul is starting to wax eloquent here in this beautiful letter. He says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. I just want to stop there. The only way Pharaoh could be saved, folks, the only way you and I can be saved is that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Because your heart is just like the heart of Pharaoh. Some of us are even more proud than Pharaoh. That you being rooted and grounded in love, and verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth, and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. This is supernatural talk, my friends. The only way that God could have saved Pharaoh is Pharaoh would humble himself and open his heart and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the only way he will save any of us, my friends. If we will humble ourselves and seek his face and put trust in him, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Um, My last point. The third and final point is our oldest and most stubborn enemy is pride. Pride, pride, pride. 
Uh, they, do, they do an assessment on the president. David's actually seen this. Oh, brothers and sisters. They have all these people, some that like you and some that don't like you. They fill out a, a review of how your performance is. And they said some nice things. But man, oh man, they said some stuff that was a bit rough about Justin. Uh, I don't know whether you've had some pointed criticism lately. The worst sort of criticism and the stuff that's true. I can handle the stuff that's just off the planet. I, they took a photo of me down at the office and I happened to hold my hands like this as they took the photo and apparently that's a Masonic symbol. I didn't have a clue, I just put my fingers together. So now I'm a mason or some crazy thing. I'm not a mason, okay. I might be many things. And I, I, a criticism like that, I think that's laughable, whatever. But the criticism that's true, oh boy, where do you go with that? What do you do with the stuff that they say about you that you find personally abhorrent, but it's true? Because it wasn't just one that said it wasn't just one. If only it was one, I could have written him off. You know, he's a loser anyway, whatever. But it's true. That was the best thing that I could have ever heard. If you have a friend in your life that will come up to you and tell you the truth that you don't like, you truly have a friend. You truly have a friend. Our greatest enemy, the oldest enemy in the universe is pride. Lucifer, this gorgeous angel who excelled in strength and was perfect in all his ways, he said, I will ascend to the farthest sides of the north. To the Mount of Congregation, I will be like the Most High. The oldest I love the book by Andrew Murray. He wrote a classic book called Humility. If you do not own that book, can I just say that you should? Andrew Murray lived back in the 1920s, was a godly man. He says in his book that we have three great motives that urge humility upon all of us. Three of them. The first is that we are creatures. That should be enough that when God says jump, you know what we say? How high, Lord? We, because we are created by him, that that was our, our origin. It also is our purpose that we are servants of God. And that great truth on its own is enough to make us humble and trusting of him. But he says there's a second one, and that's the fact that we're sinners. Is anyone in here a sinner today? Can I see the hands of the sinners? I've got both and one up. It's not enough that we're created, but in fact that we're sinners. That we have this, the chip has gone wrong in the computer, and it, it, it bends towards evil. And God in his great mercy hasn't cast us aside, but he sent his own son to save sinners. That should make us incredibly humble. 
But the third reason he gives, and the most compelling, is the fact that we are saints. Not just where we created and that we're sinners, but that we have been saved by his grace. That being saved by the works of Christ should be enough to make us all humble in an incredible way. The most distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of Christ is humility. Yet so often we look and sound more like Pharaoh than, than Jesus. What a lesson God has given us in this man. What a fool. The book Desire of Ages says the only greatness is the greatness of humility. That's the only thing that you and I can excel in in this life. Nothing else, not in knowledge or in works, but in humility. God has put me again and again in difficult situations. You know why? He loves me and wants to save me. And as I read this report, a critical report about me, I say, praise God. Praise God that it might draw me closer to Jesus and more dependent on him. As I close the sermon today, as we finish looking at Pharaoh, I just want you to hold the mirror up for yourself. And there are many things that your friends might say to you if given the right opportunity. If they're real friends. But I wonder with those things that might come to your mind as you just think about that now, what would they say about me? How could I be improved? I want to tell you today there's only one place to take that stuff. And that is to Jesus in prayer. To lay it at his feet. Because he is in the work of saving sinners and transforming us so we would not live for ourselves, but we would live according to his principles and his promises. If today you have some of those things that you would like to lay at his feet, that they belong in the life of Pharaoh, not in the life of Christ, not in the life of a Christian, if you've got some of those things, I would like to pray for you as we close our message today. Do you have your cards, David? Did, no. Okay. Folks, can you please bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, as we pause in your presence in this church, we've been look at, looking at the life of this man who you did so many miracles, so many signs that you might get to his heart. But even after the death of his own child, he rose up in rebellion against you. Father, I pray today that it would not take anything dramatic, but just the simple, small voice of your spirit that as he speaks to our heart, Lord, that that would be enough for us. 
to say there is a God whom I know and whom I will obey. Father, I want to pray for this congregation today. We all have different things in our life that you want to work on, Lord, because you love us and that you have great plans for us. And Lord, it is those things we bring to you this morning. We lay them at your feet and we ask as you promised that you would give us a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. One that's receptive to your voice, Lord. One that just loves to follow your leading in all things. One that hears the still small voice. Father, forgive us and bless us with your presence. And as we leave here today, we don't want to leave with any burdens. We want to lay them all with you. And like the sinner that went to church in Luke 18, he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I just pray that that's how we would leave here today. Humble and teachable. Your children, saved by the blood of Christ, is our prayer in his precious and holy name. Amen.